This is a supplemental episode to The Iron Heel, which includes our full interview with Academy Award-winning filmmaker Deborah Schaefer about her documentary, The Wobblies, an account of the industrial workers of the world. Hello, I'm Edward Einhorn, the writer and director of this adaptation of The Iron Heel, and I will be talking with Deborah Schaefer about her film, The Wobblies, her documentary about the industrial workers of the world, which originally premiered at the New York Film Festival in 1979 and is now having a digital remake. Deborah is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker who began making social issue documentaries as a member of the Newsreel Collective in the 70s. She co-founded Pandora Films, one of the first women's film companies, which produced several shorts. After The Wobblies, she focused on human rights in Central America and Latin America, directing many films, including Witness to War, Dr. Charlie Clements, which won the Academy Award for Short Documentary in 1985, and Fire from the Mountain, and Dance of Hope, which both played at the Sundance Film Festival. She directed one of the first post-September 11th films, From the Ashes, Ten Artists, followed by from the Ashes epilogue, which premiered at the Sundance and Tribeca Film Festivals. She is the executive producer of the Academy Award-nominated short Asylum and has directed numerous acclaimed public television programs on women and the art. She directed and produced To Be Heard, which won awards at numerous festivals and aired nationwide at PBS. She has also been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Irene Diamond Lifetime Achievement Award by the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. Let's start off just by defining the Wobblies for those of our listeners who who have not heard of them before. The Wobblies was the nickname given to uh, members of an organization called the Industrial Workers of the World, which was founded in the United States in 1905. And nobody's really sure of the origin of actually the term Wobblies. There are many kind of joking explanations for the name. Somebody said, oh, a Chinese guy couldn't pronounce I-W-W and he called it I-Wobble-Wobble. And that's where the Wobblies came from. And there are other sort of silly things like that. But they were the industrial workers of the world and they were founded as an industrial labor union, really in opposition to the AFL, which was strictly a craft union at the time. And it was, the idea was to organize all unskilled labor in the world into one giant union all over the world. The film, The Wobblies, really pretty much focuses on the Wobblies in the United States. And uh, could you tell me a little bit about the process of making The Wobblies? How did you first decide to make it? Well, I, I was just thinking the other day about how the film came about. And actually, the very first thing that influenced me was sometime in probably around 1970, somebody told me about a book, a very powerful picture book called Milltown, written by a guy named Bill Kahn. And the book was written in the 50s and is a picture book about the strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, which was one of the first giant strikes that the Wobblies helped organize and helped win. And this was a book that was published in 1954 and was probably banned for being communist propaganda. And in the 70s, when I learned that, I was shocked that in the United States, a book had been banned. And then the other thing that shocked me was I had gone through high school in the United States. I'd gone to a very good, prestigious Eastern women's college. I had studied history and I had never heard of the IWW. I'd never heard of the Industrial Workers of the World. And I thought, well, this needs some looking into. (laughs) How come I've never heard of these people? 
So somebody I knew, a, a guy named Stuart Bird, who became my partner on the film, I had known from a film organization, we both belonged to a left-wing kind of documentary filmmaking group called Newsreel. And he wrote a play called The U.S. versus William D. Haywood. And I went to see his play one night. And it was produced, it was put on in a a theater in Manhattan. And a lot of, uh, a few former members of the IWW were in the audience. And they were were very old. I mean, this organization was, its heyday was 1905 to about 1919, 1920. So even in 1977, we were talking about elderly people. And I thought, it just occurred to me that night, I said, somebody's got to do, somebody's got to record these people before they're gone. We have to do a film about them. And I approached Stu, who I hadn't worked directly with, but we knew each other. I said, Stu, let's do a film about the IWW. And he said, sure. And we started pretty much right away. We went and and we started, uh, we did our first interview, I think with somebody who had been at the play that night, a woman named Sophie Cohen, who at the time lived in Liberty, New York. And she had worked in the mills in Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah, we were not sure when we started the film how many surviving members of the IWW we would be able to find. We were really concerned about that. And so we started right away just putting the word out. There were a few people had contacted Stu Bird because they'd seen his film, uh, his play, sorry, and we were able to interview them. And we just, we kind of started, this is in the days before the internet. We didn't have uh, any way to put the word out you know, on, there was no Facebook or anything like that. So we did things, for instance, we were looking for a black worker in, from the port in Philadelphia. We created a leaflet that we handed out on the docks in Philadelphia, physically in person saying, do you know anybody who was a member of the IWW? We asked at senior citizen centers, we asked in churches And finally, somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody at a church introduced us to James Fair, who's the black longshoreman who is interviewed in the film. That was one of our more extreme searches. But we just, we put things like the equivalent of personal ads in the Nation magazine, in other newspapers around the country in different areas, because we knew that the Wobblies had been active all over the U.S. and that we were going to cover the textile mills in the East the migratory workers in the Midwest, the lumberjacks in the West, the miners in the West. We knew we had to have a big geographic reach for the film. So we just, we put notices all over the place. And eventually people started coming to us too. Somebody read our notice somewhere and called and said, you know, my grandfather was in the IWW. That's Sam Krieger who appears in the film. In the end, we found more than we could actually use, but we weren't sure how many we would find. And I'm sure they've all, I have not been actually in touch with every single one, but I'm pretty certain that everybody by now would. We filmed those interviews in 1978. So they've got to all be gone. It's it's an amazing archive. So we were chatting before when we performed the Iron Heel Live. So many of our audience members were longtime socialists or labor union members who started singing along with the actors. And we ended up creating a songbook for the show that people could open up and sing with us. And it was probably my favorite part of the live show. And I know that music is also an integral part of your movie. 
And you had mentioned that it began when somebody started spontaneously singing during an interview. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that very first interview that I mentioned before, Sophie Cohen. So the very first interview we filmed was with Sophie Cohen, who had worked in the Patterson Mills. And she spontaneously burst into song during the interview. And it's in the film. And it was such a wonderful moment that we then started asking people as we were interviewing them, we said, what song do you remember? Can you sing a song? And, and music was, singing was a major organizing tactic of the IWW. They had what they called the Little Red Songbook. I actually have a copy of it in my hand. It's this tiny little pamphlet-sized skinny book with a red cover that they, when they signed somebody up and gave them a, a membership card in the IWW, they also got a copy of the songbook. And the songs were mostly based on popular songs of the day, tunes that people knew, folk songs, religious songs, hymns, but with words that were rewritten by somebody in the IWW to be more in line with, you know, their principles in their organizing platform. So like one of their famous songs, which is in the film, is called The Preacher and the Slave. And it's uh, it's a song that makes fun of the Salvation Army because the IWW was always competing with the Salvation Army for the soapbox on the corner. So like it starts with the lyric, long haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. And when they get all your coin on the drum, they'll tell you when you're on the bum, you know, you will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. So it's all, uh, the songs were very satirical, very funny, and very important for morale building, for one of the favorites that people sang a lot was Hold the Fort, for We Are Coming, Union Men Be Strong, Solidarity Forever. They had a version of the International with their own ending. Rebel Girl about Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is a beautiful song. And I'm sure people have heard of Joe Hill because Joan Baez immortalized him in her song, I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill Last Night. Joe Hill was a famous member of the IWW and he wrote many of the songs. My family you know, has a history with, with this because my grandfather was very much into the labor movement and he was socialist. And my father used to sing those songs constantly. So I really <laughs> have those songs. You know, they're just sort of part of my upbringing. They, they can still, um, they still make me cry when I hear them. I can't help it. They're just, I'm so sentimental about them. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you hear them growing up as well? Or Actually, not, the, not those particularly. My father sang folk songs and he, we had a huge repertoire of uh, folk songs, but not labor songs. No, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I sort of got involved in radical politics in my late teens, the anti-war movement, really. I got involved in with the left in the United States and at some point also studied. That's eventually what led me to the Wobblies also was because once I was involved in the anti-war movement in the United States and, and it kind of fizzled out a lot in 1974 after the war ended, I started studying more about earlier left-wing movements in the U.S., including the labor movement. Right. So I more came to it that way. When you first showed your movie, were there a lot of people who were involved in the IWW and such uh, coming down to see the film? And uh, did you have people who would want to share their personal experiences with you, that sort of thing? I think by the time we showed the film in 79, no, there were not a lot of people who had been members of the IWW who came. Although, because it was at the New York Film Festival, we were able to invite 
for instance, James Fair from Philadelphia came with his family to the opening at Lincoln Center. Dominic Mignon, who's the Italian guy in the Patterson strike, had passed away by the time the film was done. But his family came and and they brought us a bottle of his homemade wine as a gift. It was so touching. We had It was such a funny story. When we went to film Dominic, we knew he'd been in the Patterson strike and we made arrangements to go down to Patterson to film him. And it was in the summer. I think it was probably in July. And we got there maybe around 10 in the morning. And he had been cooking for us. And we couldn't start filming until we sat down and ate this enormous Italian meal, spaghetti and brassiola and his homemade wine. And I don't know how many courses. And it was boiling hot in Patterson, New Jersey. <laughs> in July and he had no air conditioning and this giant meal and this tiny apartment. I'll never forget it as long as I live. He was so darling. And it was also boiling. We had to close because of sound. uh, We couldn't keep the windows open when we were filming. We had to close the windows. So it just, it was, it, it was about 200 degrees while we were filming that interview. So when I was working on the Iron Heel, uh, one of the things that was complicated was trying to fold in the history of socialism and the labor movement without becoming too mired in exposition. And of course, mm. you're a documentarian. You're always dealing with those sorts of struggles, how to make art out of history. What was your biggest challenge in terms of bringing the story of the Wobblies to life? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I wouldn't have been able to answer these questions, except that right now I'm in the process of restoring the film. So I've seen it twice recently. And I was thinking about this very question because one of our interviews is with a guy named Roger Baldwin who was 94 at the time we interviewed him. And he was one of the founders of the ACLU. And he wasn't really a wobbly in the sense that he wasn't a working class guy. He wasn't a worker, but he was very involved in workers, various struggles for workers' rights as a lawyer. He became a lawyer and then founded the ACLU. So we made him kind of the internal narrator. We solved the problem of conveying information like, you know, first there was the strike in Lawrence and then there was the strike in Patterson. And then we move out to the Midwest. We used Roger as a sort of internal narrator. We wrote some simple text for him to read and we went back to his place and asked him to just read certain, you know, uh, this text that we needed. And then he, of course, took one look at it and he said, oh, I wouldn't say it like this. I wouldn't say it like this. And he rewrote it on the spot and then recorded it. And the the other thing we did, we had an interesting challenge. The IWW was very well known for its more famous people, for Big Bill Haywood, for Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, for Frank Little, for Joe Hill. They were all long dead when we made this film. There were no leaders. So out of necessity, our film became a film made out of the voices of the people, the common people, the regular people, the membership. But we we couldn't leave the leaders out. So we hit upon the idea of taking certain texts from, the, from Haywood or Flynn or whoever and having an actor read them. Now, these days, everybody's very used to that in documentaries, having an actor read someone else's words and knowing it's an actor. And, but it hadn't been really done before 1979. It was a very pioneering sort of technique when we, when we first did it. And I think it works beautifully. It, you know, it, it, The leaders are there, they're acknowledged, their role is acknowledged, we have photos of them, the people talk about them, how they felt about them. But the film is really from the point of view of the people who made up the organization. One of the interviews that struck me uh, 
I forget who the subject was. He was talking about being in the boat, singing the songs, and then ending up in a really violent confrontation where uh, there, there were a few people uh, murdered. What, uh, I know this is not, you know, it, it's, it's all for you also through interviews, but how big did the violence loom to the people who were um, who were interviewing? Uh, the violence loomed, well, by the end of the IWW, I, I think the violence destroyed them. This is one of those projects, you know, I went into thinking I knew what I, you know, I knew all about it uh, by the time I'd read up and whatever. And I thought, oh, like many other organizations, the Wobblies were destroyed by internal dissension. They were torn apart by this fight after the Russian Revolution between the communists and the anarchists. And and like many organizations, it was internal infighting. I changed my mind by the time we finished the film. They were destroyed by the violence of the government and the FBI and the local police everywhere they they were. They 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 faced enormous the the example you just mentioned is Everett Washington. It was a free speech fight. And a bunch of Wobblies had planned that a certain day they were going to all converge in Everett, which is just north of Seattle. That's what they did. There were hundreds of them would show up on a certain day for a free speech fight, and they would just take their turns getting up on the soapbox. And the minute a, a cop pulled someone down to arrest them, another one would get up, and they would just come one after the other after the other until they packed the jails. I mean, the towns just didn't know what to do with them. They had, they had to feed them and keep them in jail. They, you know, That's how they won the free speech fights, finally. But this particular day, the sheriff in Everett decided he wasn't going to let this boat full of wobblies, this ferry boat, land. And so they just shot at the boat and killed five that we know of that day. Nels Peterson, who we interviewed, said there were people who sank and their bodies were never found. And, I mean, you can hear how upset these guys are talking about this that day. It's 77 and it happened in 1916. So their voices are still shaking over 60 years later as they describe what happened. But the, the government, it's the parallels for today, I have to say, are uncanny. I mean, probably your listeners have seen the film, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Well, there was the trial of the 101 Wobblies in 1921. It is not different than the trial of the Chicago Seven. It was a tactic that, that A. Mitchell Palmer who was then the head of the FBI, who was the boss of J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was his young assistant during the Palmer raids. They destroyed the Wobblies through both physical attack, shooting them, beating them up, running them out of town, and arresting them. They, they tried 101 of them and found them all guilty. Incredible. It is incredible. And that, that it's a great story. The judge in that trial, you know how everybody, Julius Hoffman is such a character. The judge in the Wobblies trial was Kenesaw Mountain Landis, who later became the commissioner of baseball. And he was somehow involved in that Black Sox scandal in Chicago. It's a great story. So what are your plans for the film once it's restored? Well, it would be nice if theaters would open up again and we could show it in a theater. But I, we don't have a definite plan yet, but the, I had given, I made a, I did a film restoration in 2005. I got a grant to make a new film negative. And once that was completed, I gave all the original materials to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And it's the Museum of Modern Art has now made a digital 4K restoration. I've just seen the final version color, checked off on the color and sound and everything. And it's just, it's gorgeous. It was so moving for me to watch the whole film, you know, in beautiful restored color, you know, the old prints had gone a little reddish and 
the color wasn't right anymore. So this is just a beautiful restoration. And I'm hoping, just stay tuned because I'm hoping we will, it'll either be a digital, like a virtual release or a theatrical release. Maybe the New York Film Festival will, they have a kind of revival section. So that's one option. Maybe the Museum of Modern Art. I can't, I don't know yet, but I will let you know so that you can let your listeners know when it is coming out. That would be terrific. I'm really looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and th- thank you for being part of this and, and uh, giving us your time. This supplemental episode was produced by Untitled Theatre Company Number 61, a theatre of ideas. Musical arrangements are provided by Richard Philbin, who also provided all of the instrumentals. The episode was sound designed and edited by Ian W. Hill. Funding for this podcast was made possible in part by grants from the Lower Manhattan Community Council, the Puffin Foundation, and the Alma and Mara Shapiro Fund. My name is Edward Einhorn, and I'm the writer and director. Thank you again for listening to our podcast.